Thanks for uh, listening to us for another episode of The Giving Leader. I'm Phil Ling. I'm the host. I'm also the the founder of The Giving Church. You can find out more about us at thegivingchurch.com. We work with churches and faith-based operations all over the United States in two areas, leadership development and generosity development. If you've been listening, you know all that stuff. Here's what I want to tell you. Um, this is an unusual time, and I've lived through some unusual times. I've, I've literally coached hundreds of churches and, and uh, nonprofits through uh, 9-11. 9-11, I was in an airplane flying from o- Portland, Oregon, and got halfway across the country, and had, they had to turn it around and send us back to Portland. Uh, I've lived through the, the tech explosion, the bubble burst. I've lived through uh, 2008 when the banks were too big to fail, but oh, well, they fell, fail anyway. And now we are going through this pandemic, this crisis that seems it's not as as um, it's not as immediate. We don't get the, to watch the towers fall, uh, but we turn on the television, we get on social media and we see the graphs go up and we see the numbers and they're interpreted to us by other folks that may or may not be necessarily accurate. And to some degree, there's probably some tea leaves in there. What I wanted to do, we did this last week and thank you, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of you downloaded in the first few hours. Uh, the two episodes we did last week with Brett Andrews out of a new life church in Chantilly, Virginia. And then the one I did with eight best practices that we're finding around the country. This one's a little different. We're going to bring on Russ, Russ Finley, Russ, I already messed up your name. Russ Finley. It's okay. Russ is, uh, he's, he's quarantined in his house too. No, he's, he's in his home. He's from central Kentucky. So he's a good guy. Cause I got a lot of roots in central Kentucky, but let me just give you a few highlights from his bio about how great he is. Cause there's some really good stuff here for what we're going to talk about. Uh, over 30 years experience in the healthcare field, running hospitals, managed care organizations, former Medicaid commissioner for Kentucky and a fellow with the National Governors Association. Here's the part that jumped out at me, and this is one of the reasons I really wanted to get Russ on the, the podcast. In 2008, apropos as this sounds, Russ was asked by the Centers for D- Disease Control, we've heard a lot about CDC, and the National Institute of Health to participate in a national healthcare war game in Washington, D.C. The war game dealt with the recognition and response to viral epidemic entering the United States and the strategies necessary to combat the impact on our health care delivery system, our economy, and national security. Uh, he's got a, a master's degree in public administration. He's got an undergraduate in political science. Uh, like I said, he's a Kentucky guy, so we know we can trust him. But Russ is going to help us pull back the curtain and talk about what is happening in our world. Russ, thank you for being here. Thank you. And you are in central Kentucky, I take it, because I can see behind you stuff that looks Kentucky. <laughs> I'm in Georgetown. Georgetown, just outside of Lexington, home of Toyota. That's exactly right. Which so is what is Toyota for? Well, I was going to say, what has Toyota done right now in the last couple of weeks? You know, they, they, took, a, they took a very leveled approach, but they are now shut down for two weeks. Uh, I expect it'll be extended a little beyond that. I haven't. I haven't heard it from them yet, but I expect it'll be extended beyond that. But they're they're taking two weeks off right now. One of the things that I wanted to get in with you, and uh, you are an expert because you're far away from me. You know, anybody that's far away from you is an expert. Uh, you're an expert on this in the whole idea of modeling. So I've been watching. I'm a news junkie anyway, and a political junkie. Watch stuff that's happening. And when this all started uh, started to unravel. Uh, 
Cooper and I that works with me, we were different places in the country trying to figure out what's real, what's not, what plane flights to cancel, what ones to, to keep, because maybe we're supposed to be in LaGuardia tomorrow, you know, at LaGuardia Airport in uh, New York. Um, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, so as that, that continued to unfold and we made those predictions about what we could and couldn't do, and we're doing lots and lots of a Zoom uh, video conferencing with clients and so forth, and a lot of crisis management with churches that are finding out how do we survive through this when suddenly nobody's allowed to come to our facilities and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what I know is that we have literally thousands of people listening. A lot of them are ministry leaders, and they're either watching their friends say things on Facebook or social media or what's trending, or they're watching television shows with news that may or may not be as accurate as it could be, or is just run through the lens of who's presenting the information. And one of the topics that's talked about a lot is modeling. And you can, you can go to some, several news sites where they'll pull up the big screen and it's the Johns Hopkins thing, which is, okay, here's the graphs and this is what this means. And this is going up, this is going down. We want this to flatten. We know all the little catchphrases to say. We want it to see when it starts to flatten. We know that Italy, as of today, their death rate has actually dropped, I believe. Uh, so that's supposedly a good thing, unless you're one of the people that died. That doesn't sound so great. But uh, when we talk about modeling, how much confidence should we put in those things when they say this has been modeled out? So example, and I, I'll set you up. We know there's about 46,000 known cases in the United States. We also know most people haven't been tested. So then they model out and say, yeah, maybe a whole lot more than that. Uh, do we put a lot of stock in that? You know, it's interesting. I, I, I've read multiple reports um, from various organizations, and I have mixed feelings. Okay, we know that the data that that China provided was understated. Uh, the fact that 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 their models showed uh, an infection rate far below, even though it, it originated there. So we know not to not to trust that data, just because of how they calculate it is different from the rest of the world, and there's a lot there's no transparency. What's more concerning is the fact that they've now shown that the data from the World Health Organization isn't as reliable as we would like either, and there's been lots of reports on that because of of the way that they've got different organizations who are calculating it and bringing it in house. And there's a lot of discrepancies there. What the, the work that the CDC is doing, Johns Hopkins, uh, places like that, to an extent is based on th that data. Okay. So I, what I would say is that there is value in what they're reporting, but there's a lot of, of volatility in the data right now. You, you know, the, the two key factors that you need to look at. Uh, one is they, I laugh at it because they call it R naught. Okay. And you think of Jethro Bodine, we've talked about, you know, not, not carry the, you know, it, it's literally R zero. Okay. That is basically the, the, what they call the transmission rate. Okay. That's the, the number that they use. Uh, if it's around R naught, then it's, it's a relatively stable situation. As that goes up to R1, R2, it becomes a pandemic and basically out of control. If you're above R2, it is, you know, it is a, a 
hugely distressing thing. Right now, that number is fluctuating. We're somewhere in the R1 to R2 area is what they're telling us. The other, uh, the other number that they, that they go by all the time, and I have to look at my note because they changed the terminology on me, but it's what they call the cereal time. Uh, and cereal as in uh, not the breakfast cereal, but uh, it is basically the amount of time that it takes an infected person to actually be in showing and, and, and transmitting the disease to other people. So when you, when you multiply those two factors together, you come up with the basis of the models that they're using. And it is fluid. It is completely fluid right now. And there's a lot of factors in play. For instance, if you look at what's transpiring in New York City, and my company that I work for is based in Newark. So, uh, and, and I would not go there now for any money in the world. If you look at the way the cases have exploded in New York City in just the recent couple of weeks, you have to start looking at the underlying social issues. You know, uh, how do people get back and forth to work or to wherever they're going? Well, if you live in, if you've ever been to New York City, if you live in New York City, it's all done by mass transit. You know, very, you don't drive there unless you absolutely have. To. Well, up until last week, talking with some colleagues up there, they're still taking the mass transit system back and forth to work. And I'm like, that's, that's just craziness at this point. Um, you know, and then you look at, can you afford to be off work? Can you, you know, do you live by yourself? Uh, all those types of things. And do you have access to the, the social services that you need in order to, to sustain yourself? All those will come into play. That's why you've seen New York City just kind of explode because they're all right there on top of each other and, and they, they still rely on, you know, a, a local bodega or, a, or, or some local shop for their food. They don't have, you know, the, the distance between we have between our neighbors and it's, that is what's leading to the explosion of cases there. Okay. So what's interesting, you know, a lot of, social engineering over the last decades has been pushing toward that denser housing, more rapid transportation, wean Americans off the free movement of individuals in cars. It is kind of interesting to see if like, Oh, maybe that's not always good. <laughs> maybe that's a bad thing sometimes. Well, it, it, it goes back to an interesting part of this conversation. And that is, you know, we've known for, 15 or 20 years. If you, if you talked with, with the guys that I know who are epidemiologists, they would tell you, they would have told you 20 years ago, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when something like this happens. We knew it was coming, you know, and we've, and we've had some, we had some warning shots across the bow with H1N1 and SARS and MERS and even the, you know, the bird flu, the swine flu, all of those things all were, similar in their epidemiology, not exact, but similar. And, and so we had a little bit of forewarning, but it, it got to the point, I think, where, where um, we cried wolf too many times and, and people became lax. Uh, you know, back in 2009 or 10, we had a national stockpile of of respirator masks and, you know, all of the, the medical supplies. 
And then when H1N1 occurred, we gave out the biggest part of that national stockpile and it was never replenished. Wow. And, and the reason being is because again, we, we tended to, we tended to focus on other things other than this existential threat that nobody really could predict happening. Uh, even though there's been, gosh, there's been multiple studies. There was one by the Rand corporation back in 2012 and Johns Hopkins did one in 2018 that said, this is what's going to happen. And, you know, this is coming. And we just kind of overlooked it. And, you know, and then, but this doesn't have to be, um, uh, it doesn't have to be something that is um, tied to, you know, how closely we live together, the use of mass transit. It's, It's more about doing the protective stuff that we need to do ahead of time or before time to mitigate this and at least have the policies in place to prepare for an event like this that right now we don't have. Okay, so let let me go a couple of places. I know that I've got uh, clients across the country, pastors, leaders, and some of them, they're doing the prudent things, but down deep, they're wondering, is this really a big deal? You know, because nobody around them sick, that kind of a thing. You know, it's uh, when you see the stats that the normal flu that goes through our our country kills 30, 40, 50,000 people in a year, which is a lot more than this has killed in the United States so far. So is it the speed, the way it's transmitted? What makes this so formidable compared to we go through flu season and and people that are on the margins health-wise often are susceptible and pass away? Why why the shutdown of the world based on this one? Uh, This one has one very unique characteristic. Um, And it it is, if you think of, if you go back to the, the, origins of the virus and we still aren't a hundred percent sure what the origin is you know there's conspiracy theories theories about it but most likely what we know is it's animal transmitted to human but what makes this different i mean we've seen that before but what makes it but those have never been able to be transmitted from human to human so what we're seeing now is that that first mutation was the ability to transmit from yeah, animal to human and then human to human. That's, that's rare. But what makes this deadly is the fact, unlike the flu, we've had the flu for eons. It's been here since the dawn of time. Humans have built up a natural immunity or some immunity to the flu. You know, case in point, I've never had the flu. <laughs> uh, and, and so there's even, but even then we've got vaccines, we've got other things because we understand the immunology of, 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 uh, the flu and how to deal with it. And we can address each, each new version, each new mutation of the flu, because we know how it works. This is a first, the human body has no immunity to this virus. Okay. You're going to have some people who are, who will get it and be totally asymptomatic. They'll show no symptoms, but we know that even though you're asymptomatic, you can still transmit the disease. That's that in itself is is deadly because people don't know that they're doing it. That's why the social distancing and, and stay at home is so important. Are we overplaying it? No, I don't think so. And the the fact is, as a country, we're still in that inception phase. We haven't hit. You're seeing it in New York. New York is in the aggressive stage now. Okay? 
it's virtually unstoppable in New York City at this point. Uh, and in Washington State was the same way after the, you had the one gentleman came in from, <coughs> from China and they can trace it back now to where he infected about 100 people. Uh, you know, we're seeing it in San Francisco. We're seeing it in isolated pockets right now. But given, given what you're talking about, our, our desires of people to kind of move about freely and do what we want and go where we want, it's gradually going to move inward. Okay? That's what every model has shown. I don't disagree with those models because just because of the way that we tend to, to work and play and do all those things, it's just, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. The whole, the whole, the whole, Focus right now is not on can we stop it from happening because you can't. What we can do is mitigate the the the, uh, the impact of it uh, by by avoiding the the, the spikes and and so forth. But it, it people should not take it lightly or, or take it lightly. It is um, it is by all instances, you know, if if the death rate is as modeled right now, around 1%. That may not sound like much to people, but it all, it depends on what factor you use on the other end. If you get, if what they're saying, and, and people I, I, I trust who are saying, you know, there could be by the end of this year, 60 or 70 million people who have the coronavirus in the United States. 1% of that is a big number. So it is, it, it, people need to pay attention to it and, and, and don't, take it, uh, don't take it lightly because it is a very serious health issue. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. In 2008, you got to participate in a war game simulation dealing with pandemics, working with the CDC and others, uh, the National Healthcare Group. Um, in that scenario, what was the scenario you guys were painting what was it you were trying to do, simulate, this is what we would do, and how'd that work out? Yeah, that was <laughs> an eye-opening experience, let me tell you. Um, basically, what, it, what they did was they brought together um, a group of healthcare uh, experts, and how I got invited, I don't know, but a group of healthcare experts from around the country, uh, those of us who had experience in both um, private sector, the public sector working. I mean, we had people from the VA there. We had people from who were experts in uh, the, the elderly. Uh, we had people who were experts. Obviously there were doctors there. There were dentists there. There was about, um, about 75 of us who participated in this thing. And we looked at it from a variety of, of aspects, but it was, let's take a virus, so, so very, very similar to what we're talking about right now. So again, going back to the fact that we knew this was coming 20 years ago, uh, but uh, looking at a virus like that, that arrives by somebody coming into the country and then seeing how it, it transmitted itself uh, nationally and then the steps that had to be taken uh, from a personal standpoint, from a government standpoint. And, and I, I want to get into that one piece right there for just a minute, but, uh, and, and see how all those things kind of play together in, in our, in a response. 
I, I hear a lot of people now who are, you know, whether it's their, their local government or their state government or regional government or, or even the, uh, the national government, it is an incredibly, inc- and I, this was one of the things that, that, that automatically uh, it came to the forefront almost immediately. It is an almost impossible task to manage every aspect of a pandemic like this. It's one thing to talk about the medical impact and what needs to happen on the medical side, but then you also have to manage the economic impact. You have to handle the national, uh, the, the, the national preparedness, you know, and, and national security and, and, you know, how you deal with people on a financial level. And then you've got the regulatory side, which is what we're seeing play out right now in Congress and in your state legislators of, of how you handle, you know, how you move these pieces around. It is an unbelievably complex, uh, it's like a, a big ball of yarn. You're trying to unwind, you know, trying to, it's, it's unbelievably complex. What we found when we did the study, when we did the war game was the biggest problem that we had was the amount of time to coordinate between all of the known entities. Okay, both internationally, nationally, uh, state, federal, local. It was it was unbelievably complex. Now it's easier now than it was when we did the study because we have uh, you know video conferencing and things that we really didn't have available to us back then. But it's still trying to get all of those things done because even though the federal government has some responsibility, a big portion of this. Uh, is still handled at the state level with the governors and the legislators, and they are not all in sync. So you have some states who are doing one thing, some that are doing another. Our, Kentucky has been very good at it. Our, our governor has done an excellent job, and they've taken some very aggressive stamp steps. And you've seen them kind of march those forward a little bit over the last couple of weeks because we're, we're getting to the point in the, in the progression curve where it's going to peak. So uh, it is a. It was a fascinating study. I, I I hesitate to tell anybody what the outcome was because it, <laughs> uh, it was it was in fact it was very ugly, and that's one of the things that was an eye opener on why and why this became a passion of mine is it is um, it, it is evident that there were shortcomings. We identified back then that one of the big shortcomings in our system was the fact that we didn't have a supply of our own medical equipment. Wow. Supply. Oh yeah. That was, that was one of the initial recommendations that came out of our, our initial studies that we don't have these production capabilities in the United States. Okay. So, so take a pin a pin there for a second, because just for those that are listening, this is that part. So remember this is a, a war games exercise 12 years ago. This is that part where they're enacting the 1950 law that says, hey, wait a minute, this is even national security. We can't have 97% of our antibiotics coming from China, or we can't have all our respirators built somewhere, Vietnam or where it happens to be. And now you see Tesla, General Motors, Ford saying they're going to build ventilators. You got uh, appeals to clothing manufacturers to make masks, you know, all, all different things. But this once again, was not a surprise if you were able to simulate that over a decade ago. Yeah, and and again, it, it was it was even done most recently. Johns, like I said, Johns Hopkins did it in both 2018 and 2019. 
did the exact same study and came up with almost exactly the same results. So it's the, the, the problem is, is uh, again, you go back to the fact that we've cried wolf on this thing so many times. You know, people say, oh, you know, we did H1N1 and it wasn't, the, it wasn't as bad as what everybody said. You can't compare one virus to another or one. You just can't do it. This one is completely different. One of the things that it points out, not to go down a rabbit hole, but one of the things that it points out, and, and actually we had people who were from the Defense Department in this war game scenario, is that as a country, we're not prepared for a bioterrorism or bio, uh, a bio, a biological attack. This points that out even further. We're not prepared for that. Our hospital system is fragile. Our, our, we, we have a shortage in most states in, in medical professionals in medically underserved areas all over the place. Kentucky and Eastern Kentucky, is, it, is a, it is extreme. Uh, and so we, we have these massive issues that we've got. And most, and most people don't realize 95% of the ventilator masks that are produced are produced in China. You know, most of our medications come from China. So it is, it, it, it's kind of, it, it's, it's very confounding to me that we've not addressed it more. But again, we've seen this come up multiple times and we've cried wolf and now, and then everybody's kind of turned their back on it. Okay. So and, and this one, if you say, ah, I don't know if I really want to answer that, I understand. But when you're going through the, the simulated war games uh, 12 years ago, that was basically mapping out a very similar experience to what we're living out right now. It seems to be you come to a point where you decide, all right, we're trying to limit the number of people infected and dying. But when we restrict everything that we do, free flow of, of, of people and economy, then we kill our economy, which eventually can throw not just into a recession, but a depression. Unemployed, unemployment could hit 30% next week when it was 2.9 or something a month ago. Um, and so in that room, does somebody said, say, what is the acceptable amount of carnage that we will endure so that we don't go into a 10-year, 15-year depression? Is that part of the simulation? Oh, oh, absolutely. And <laughs> you, when you talk about the carnage, um, you know, again, part of that carnage that we had, to, that we simulated was, at what point do you do you say, okay, if you're over 80 years old, you don't get a ventilator, okay? which you see Italy doing now, right? Right. Uh, we only have 500,000 ventilators in the entire country. That's it. So it, it doesn't take long for us to get to that saturation point, which is why they're trying to flatten that curve uh, because, because we don't have that, that capability. Uh, but when you talk about the economic impact, it's a little harder to model. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that we wound up shutting down everything, literally everything, uh, air travel, you know, basically told people don't go outside, you know, just stay in as long and, and you can't theoretically, I mean, you can do that in theory. It's hard to do in practicality. Uh, and, and people tend to panic when you do that. So you, you almost, you have to get to a, a tipping point before you can take those measures, What you, if you've paid attention to what, and you have obviously, 
if you paid attention to what they've done, they've been gradually moving the needle up a little bit every day with, we want you to do this now. We want you to do this now. They, they knew if they go straight to that point where you need to go to stop it, um, it, it, it you would have a mass panic, right? You, you would have absolute bedlam. But until we get, to, and we can't really get to that point in this country yet because we don't have the testing available. Uh, you, know, you, you mentioned earlier that we, we really don't know what the total impact is right now. Imagine, if you would, that I would guess right now that for every known case, there's probably 10 or 11 that are unknown. So you take that total number of cases right now and magnify it by tenfold, and that gives you an idea of what we're talking about. That's, that's why they're taking the measures that they are. They know that it's greater than what we've been told. But so the economic impact is, is something that I think, you know, every study that I've read, I, I was reading one uh, yesterday afternoon. Uh, I forget which group it was that did. I think it was McKenzie. Who, who said, you know, you're probably looking at, depending on how the disease progresses and how people respond to it, and as we get more data and we can actively predict, you know, one of the things that we don't know yet is how this virus will, will behave in a warm, humid environment. We don't know. Flu, you know, we know what it does. This, we don't know what it's going to do. Right now, the belief is that it's not going to impact this virus and it's just going to continue. But you know, what most of the modeling show was it took about three quarters, maybe even a year to recover totally. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what, what makes this different though, is there's actually an opportunity here for the economy to grow uh, in areas that we really hadn't been looking at before on the medical side. And I think you'll see more of that. Uh, and, and, you know, there's probably going to be, you look at the companies right now who are actually expanding employment. Oh yeah. Uh, Amazon. And, and I saw where uh, Wal uh, Walmart's adding hundred thousand people. I mean, these people are absolutely, this is a boom for them in a bad way, but it is a boom for them. So we did model it. It wasn't pretty. It was very, it makes for a very tough time for people. Uh, and a very tough time for businesses. And uh, I'm hoping that's part of what's coming in this, this package that the Senate is working on uh, right now. But it is a very, it, it doesn't, it's not a pretty picture, but as, as bad as it is on the economy, it was worse when you started thinking about, you know, who am I gonna turn this, this ventilator off for? You know, who doesn't get care? That's, that's the gut-wrenching part. Okay, so one of my last questions. When you're looking at the, this play out in a simulated form, just like in Italy was hit, but that's not really completely accurate because Northern Italy is really hit. And with the 100,000 Chinese folks that are living there and a million of them from Wuhan, I mean, there's some reasons for that, but they're, they're really hit. So when you look at the United States, are we going to probably have hot zones that are really, really tough? New York City, very dense, all that stuff. And then there's other parts of the country, kind of like when you look at the map right now at night and the lights, there are not a lot of lights in the middle. That's right. Well, and, and that's exactly how it's going to play out. I mean, you'll see, you, you, you will see the, the, the density factor come into play, right? Where you have New York City and that whole Eastern corridor 
uh, are going to take the biggest hit. Okay. Out West in, in Chicago is the same way, the Chicago metropolitan area and then the West coast, it's all by the density of population. What, ha- what you notice is when you get to the middle of the country, people don't live that close to each other, right? They don't have that social interaction that people, and they don't have the mass transportation and they don't have, you know, uh, the nightclubs and those things. So people don't have that interaction. It's, it, it'll be have, it'll have less of an impact in the middle part of the country. It will still have an impact. I mean, there's, there's places in the middle part of the country where there's projected that there will, there won't be a case. Wow. You believe that. Uh, and again, you're looking at, you know, places like uh, the middle of Kansas, you know, which right. Kansas still hasn't had a case and that's down of several hundred thousand people. So that, that's the interesting part, but it, it's almost like an accordion file and it's, it starts on the two, the two coasts and then kind of gradually moves in. And that's, that's what we kind of expect to happen. And again, how that, how you mitigate that is by, you know, the social distancing and, and reduction. I think what we're going to see before too long is a complete shutdown of, of the mass transit system for at least a period. Well, t- today already, as we're talking on this Tuesday, uh, recording this session, they've uh, looked at the uh, airlines and talking about shutting them down completely for a period of time. Where I talked to Delta just last night because I travel all the time. And they're like, you know, hey, look forward to seeing you. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, maybe not. Not yeah, for the, a while. Yeah, the first thing I thought of was, oh, there goes my SkyMile status. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she thanked me for that. You know, thank you. Uh, uh, but, and, and it is regional in its, its impact right now. You know, I have a brother that lives in Phoenix, Arizona. I text him early on and said, so what are you seeing? He goes, I really don't see anything. Nothing's happened. Then my sister lives in Kirkland, Washington, which is yeah, epicenter. Oh, epicenter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's been smashed. So it, there is somewhat regional and how do we, you know, we are a mobile country and not just us, but our stuff. So here's where I want to end. Uh, where, what are you as your family doing right now in precautionary measures? And I'll give you an example. Last night, my wife and I ordered groceries from Walmart online. Mm-hmm. picked up text and said, we're there. They brought them and put them in the car. I didn't even touch the document to sign it. Cause they said, you know, you don't have to touch it. When we got home, we cleaned all the outside of those groceries before we brought right. them in the house because yep. my wife said, Dr. Oz told us to. So, you know, we did that. So, right. and, and I don't think that's crazy. I, but I, cause I've read, you know, how long it can last on certain sub uh, surfaces, cardboard, plastic, whatever. So what are you doing as a family? Okay. Well, first of all, let me, let me, let me say this for those who are, who are saying, Hey, we don't, we haven't seen anything yet. We don't anticipate that we're going to hit the top of the peak until late April. Okay. So, uh, what you're going to see is probably an increase of, it may double in size every day, every two days, excuse me, two or three days for the foreseeable future. And then we'll peak in that April or May timeframe. So that's, that's what I, I see. But uh, uh, interestingly enough, in January, uh, I, I did a Facebook post and basically kind of relayed uh, what I had done this, this war game. And I told people then, I said, you need to prepare for this. This is different. You need to make some preparations. I'm not telling you to panic. I'm telling you to prepare. And I actually started buying up the stuff that I thought I would need. And I have two 
20 year old, you know, 20 mid twenties children. And I knew they weren't going to prepare the way they should. So I started, you know, encouraging them and, and, and getting stuff uh, that they needed for their houses and kind of making them prepared. But it, it was all a matter of it, people don't need to fear for the lack. You know, we're not going to starve to death and, and we're not going to, to have a national toilet paper shortage and we're not going to have all these other things happen. Those kind of provisions will be accounted for. What people need to be prepared for is to change the way that they handle themselves daily. Hand washing was a great example. You know, the hand sanitizer, not as good as, as the hand washing, but again, a very appropriate social distancing. It, it was all of those types of things that I started putting into practice um, uh, several weeks ago. And I told my kids, I said, you gotta, you gotta start thinking about this stuff now and doing it now, get yourself ready because you're not going to be able to do those things. And it's hard because my 23 year old daughter is a very social butterfly. She wants to go do all these things. So it's, I almost had to chain her to her, to her house. But, uh, that's, that's what I did is I just started thinking differently about how I needed to, uh, how I needed to handle things. And I started talking with my company about, you know, here's some things that we need to be prepared for, uh, in terms of, of, how we conduct a business daily because so much of our business like yours is face-to-face -face interaction with state government people and, and doctors and hospitals. And, and you just can't, you can't go about that business. So it's just been that kind of mental preparation and thinking differently about how I handle everyday life. We've been talking with Russ Finley. I told you at the onset that Russ has got 30 years experience in healthcare. And one of the things that really piqued my interest to talk to Russ and, and has proven out is where in 2008, he took part in a CDC and National Institute of Health uh, where they worked together in a healthcare war game scenario to see how a pandemic would spread through our, our economy, our national security, our healthcare delivery systems, and what we have to do to mitigate that impact. So that's why we had him on. I think it's fascinating. I would love to reach out to him again in the future. I know a lot of you listening, we're, we've got people all over the country. We've got people in several other countries that are listening to us. And all one of the things he talked about is the regional piece of this. And so you may be somewhere like my brother in Phoenix and say, hey, I don't see what's going on. But my sister in Kirkland, Washington, outside on the east side of Seattle will tell you a completely different story. Or, or New York, where we've got folks and uh, clients. Um, what I would tell you to do is number one, hope is in God. We know that as believers. And we know that we have been blessed in this generation, but it's not something we haven't seen. When my grandparents were young and young adults in 1918, the flu epidemic went through and killed between 50 and 100 million, depending on what you read, across the globe, which is numbers we can't even fathom. And when you put in a percentage of population, because of how much smaller the world was in 1918, you know, it, it's even exacerbated that much more. So here's what we're going to do at The Giving Leader is we'll continue to bring information. We'll continue to bring people that give insight and ideas, and you continue to be the church. We go to our backlog of podcasts. Listen to the one where we talk to eight principles that we're seeing around the, uh, the country of churches that are doing things to be the church in the community and are having a positive impact. And I think we'll survive through this even economically because pretty soon we're going to have churches and faith-based nonprofits. They're going to decide between laying off staff, paying mortgages, making tough calls. And because not everybody's ready for rainy days. 
So that listen to that episode, listen to the one before that with Brett Andrews, the church in D.C. that we talked about. They, they have a health care facility that 10,000 people a week go through. And what do you do with all that? And how do you just shut that down? And you got 100 employees and, and it's, it's a church. That's why they do it. So go back and listen to those past episodes. You're listening to The Giving Leader. I'm Phil Ling. I'm the host. I'm also the founder of The Giving Church. Go to thegivingchurch.com. You can get more information. You can download our free book talking about the changing economy and how that's impacting nonprofits. And my uh, gratitude goes out to Russ. Russ, thank you for carving out time. Hey, thank you, Phil. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it. I will reach out again soon. Sounds good. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.